Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. My opening rant today over at HartmanReport.com is titled, How Reaganism Turned Ray Rosenberry and Joe Stack into Terrorists. So Ray Rosenberry is the guy who drove his truck into Washington, D.C., and said he had a bomb and he was going to blow things up if Joe Biden didn't resign and Trump was going to replace him and then pardon all the all these guys. These are white guys who grew up before Reaganism really and truly gutted America. And, you know, in a very different time in America, frankly. And uh, Rosenberry, the guy who drove his truck into Washington, D.C. and then threatened to blow it up, went on this rant. He said, you know, they're, they're, they keep allowing these illegal Mexicans in here, all these illegal immigrants from Afghanistan. You don't have free health care for us, but you're effing giving it to them. He had posted memes on Facebook from racists like Donald Trump Jr. and had voted for the first time in his life, according to his wife, for white supremacist Donald Trump. And uh, th this is, you know, people like this, white, white middle-class people who actually experienced the middle class and then had it ripped away from them are uniquely vulnerable to this racialized message that these demagogues like Donald Trump are sending, particularly when they are told explicitly, like on you know, right-wing hate radio and on Fox News, that it is a dark-skinned they that are responsible for their economic woes. We had Dan Patrick on Fox News saying that it was black people who were spreading COVID in Texas. They're the ones who are unvaccinated. It's all their fault, right? I mean, you know what? Last week it was immigrants. Blame it on people who are not white. That is their, their shtick. Uh, Rosenberry said, Joe Biden, the South is fed up. He went into an extended rant about how his doctor uh, had just said insurance would not pay for his wife's well, for his own, the, the pain shot for his back and his wife's uh, surgery for her skin cancer on her face because that health care was instead going to brown-skinned illegals. And, and Rosenberry is just the most recent in a long line of white, formerly middle-class people. And Joe Stack, 
You know, they both grew up in an America before the neoliberal austerity and tax cut policies of Reaganism gutted our country. They both mourned the loss of the middle class prosperity of that time in America and looked to right wing commentary to make sense of it all. And then they both turned to terrorism. Here's the thing. White people in distress like Rosenberry are uniquely vulnerable to right-wing demagogues like Donald Trump, particularly when they're told that a dark-skinned they are responsible for their economic woes or loss of status. I mean, this guy believed Donald Trump when Trump said that the system was rigged and refugees want to murder and rape white women and that Trump and his rich friends were going to drain the swamp and restore the glory days of America's white working class. Right. He seems to have particularly bonded with Donald Trump's racism. One of the things that uh, Roseberry said in his uh, live Facebook feed, he said, Joe Biden, the South is fed up. Right, the South. Rosenberry is just the most recent in a long line of white, formerly middle-class people that Reaganism has broken, who were then recruited by right-wingers with racist memes. Altogether, too many of them are turning to terrorism as a remedy, as the FBI has been highlighting ever since Tim McVeigh, another one of these guys, blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City back in 1995. He killed 168 people, 19 of them children, and injured 680 people. He thought he was, you know, going to kick off a race war, Tim McVeigh. Joe Stack, in February of 2010, woke up in his cozy middle-class neighborhood, set his home on fire, and drove to the local airport just outside Austin, Texas. He hopped in his single-engine Piper Dakota airplane. This is, this is a guy who had been, you know, right solid in the middle. He was running this little uh, software consulting company, but the Bush crash of 2008 took him down. But he still had the airplane, so he takes off with this airplane, this little tiny airplane from the Georgetown Municipal Airport, and about 10 minutes later, just like a missile, dives his plane right into the office building where the IRS had their offices, the local IRS tax collection office. The, the IRS tax collection office, the IRS that was hounding him for, you know, he hadn't paid his taxes in two years. And, he, and in the process, he killed an IRS agent and a black Vietnam veteran, a guy by the name of Vernon, Hunt, Vernon Hunter. You know, when the U.S. economy went into meltdown with the Bush crash of 2008, working class people of all races, like Joe Stack, were hit hard. He was a software engineer, watched his clients and his income dry up. But he didn't get the bailout like Wall Street. And he was watching this happen. He was watching all this money going to Wall Street, going to the billionaires. We were bailing out billionaires, not just in the United States, but all over the world. But Joe Stack's bills were piling up. He sunk into debt. The tax man was knocking down his door. Uncle Sam had to bail out the billionaires, had to bail out the $100 billion transnational corporations, many of which, by the way, were paying no corporate income taxes. But they had nothing for Joe. And to make matters worse, from Joe's point of view, talk radio voices complained that black and Hispanic Americans were living on welfare that he didn't qualify for because he owned a home. So, you know, Joe appeared calm on the surface. He seemed like a regular guy and a run-of-the-mill middle-class home on Dapple Gray Lane in North Austin, played guitar in a local band, but there were clues. He named his band Last Straw, and his only album was titled Over the Edge. There was a quiet desperation consuming him.
and he was near a breaking point. His brother said, Joe seemed like one of us ducks floating down the river. We just didn't realize he was paddling so furious under the water. Eventually, Joe got tired of paddling, and that's when he resorted to becoming the nation's first suicide bomber. He wrote in his manifesto, he said, I saw it written once that the definition of insanity is repeating the same process over and over and expecting the outcome to suddenly be different. I am ready to finally to stop this insanity. At that time, the best chance Americans of all races had to peaceably change their broken political and economic system was through free and fair democratic elections. But one month before Stack's fateful flight, the Supreme Court took that option off the table with their Citizens United decision that for the first time in American history, legalized political bribery. You know, John Kennedy warned us back in 1961, and this was in the context of the civil rights movement, but it was a, a, a prescient warning. He said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Joe Stack in his suicide letter, he said, I can only hope that the numbers quickly get too big to be whitewashed and ignored, that the American zombies wake up and revolt. It will take nothing less. And then Rosenberry, his terrorist rant and his sim attack on the Capitol was a similar plea and ironically came the same day that the Center for Economic and Policy Research published this new data showing that if the minimum wage had kept up with inflation, something that stopped with the Reagan revolution, it would be around 26 bucks an hour right now. It started flattening out in the 1970s, in part because of the Arab oil embargo and then Nixon put into place his wage and price control. So that immediately stopped the growth of wages. And then, you know, we had a couple of years of pretty bad inflation there. Wages picked up a little bit more during that time. And then came the Reagan revolution. And Reagan, you know, his first year in office, destroyed Patco and just, you know, started taking an axe to to unions all, all over the country. Here's the irony, you know, if we had Medicare for all, the medical bills that had buried Rosenberry and his wife wouldn't exist. They would have gotten the help they need. They wouldn't be deeply in debt. Just ask any Canadian. Here's the bottom line. Rosenberry and Stack were right about how much we actually do need a revolution against Reaganomics and the devastation it's wrought across the American landscape. We need to reverse the damage it's done to every race and economic group, except the top 1%, of course, who have benefited tremendously from 40 years of Reaganism. I mean, that was the whole point of Reaganism. So, yeah, they're right we need a revolution, but sadly they've been listening to the counter-revolutionaries, the mouthpieces for America's right-wing billionaires and America's largest corporations, who told them that cutting taxes on the morbidly rich would trickle down and that their troubles were because those people of color were making off with what was once theirs. And nobody bothered to tell Rosenberry or Stack or any of these guys that they were being robbed by right-wing white billionaires intent on owning almost everything. I told you the story just a few minutes ago about the billionaire and the two guys at the table. You know, the billionaire's got all the cookies, and he says to the white guy, that black guy wants your cookie. This is, this is what they've been doing forever. When JFK became president in 1961, top CEO salaries in the United States rarely went above $3 million a year. Why? Because at that point in time, when you took more than $3 million a year, your top income tax rate was 91%. Who's going to do that, right? 
So they just said, hey, I'll work for $3 million a year. And I guarantee you these CEOs who are making $10 million, $30 million, $50 million, $100 million, $200 million, $500 million a year right now, if you were to say to them, you know, your salary's capped at $3 million a year because after that 91% top tax rate, you know, you're just not going to get that much money. They still show up for work. What, do we think there's a shortage of, of people who have the skills to be a CEO? There's no shortage of such people. And the CEOs we have, they, they would work for $3 million a year because they did before. There was no shortage of CEOs in 1960 when the top tax rate above $3 million a year was 91%. But Reagan came in and lowered that top tax rate from 74% down to 25%. It's back up to you know around 36% now. But he, he lowered it below that magic 50% threshold and he slashed corporate taxes, he gutted the estate tax, he drilled thousands of special interest loopholes into the tax code, and this all began an estimated $7 trillion ta transfer of wealth from the working class people in the, in the United States up to the top 1%. Now, the $7 trillion number, um, I have seen estimates as high as $12 trillion, I've seen estimates as low as $3 trillion, trillion that has been moved out of the wealth of the middle class you know, home equity, savings accounts, investments, all these kind of things, into the pockets of the billion, billionaire class. Um, seven trillion seems to be the number that is, you know, most frequently uh, quoted. George W. Bush added his own trillions of dollars in tax cuts that sped up that transfer of wealth from people like Rosenberry and Stack to the obscenely rich oligarchs, like Bush's own dynastic family and the Trumps. And then Trump himself gifted his morbidly rich buddies with another $2 trillion in just one year, all borrowed on our national credit card, all still in place, further draining American resources that could be used for housing, education, and health care. And meanwhile, the multimillionaire hosts on the billionaire-owned right-wing media continue to blame all the ills of America on immigrants and people of color. Like we heard Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas on Fox and Friends, saying that the problem with COVID in Texas, why their hospitals are overflowing, it's black people, don't you know? That's, that's who's unvaccinated. Right, blame it all on black people. Hannah Arendt said, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exists. This Republican scam, this is this idea that we have a cure. We have a cure for COVID, so you don't have to get vaccinated and you don't have to worry because we've got this cure. Greg Abbott is getting it in Texas. It's the Regeneron, it's the, it's the monoclonal antibodies. Aren't they wonderful? And this is like all over right-wing media right now that there's a cure. The fact of the matter is that this was a study that was done in the UK in June of this year. And what they found was that when they used Regeneron this is the monoclonal antibody. This is what Donald Trump and Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani all got when they caught COVID. You know, they, it takes an hour. They drip it into your veins. You have to sit in an infusion center. And the study in the UK found that when people got this, it reduced deaths, mortality, by 20%, which is good, but it's not a cure, not even close. 
And right now, basically, the Republicans are hiding behind Regeneron, this monoclonal antibody, the same way they were with hydroxychloroquine before. They were like, oh, don't worry, just go out and get sick. Send your kids to school without masks. So, you know, it's no big deal um, because, you know, we've got hydroxychloroquine. Well, now it's because we've got Regeneron. Texas has nine infusion centers in the works. Nine infusion centers will be able to see 1,350 patients a day because, like I said, it takes an hour or so to infuse this stuff. That's fewer than 7% of the, of the Texans who test positive every day. This is not any kind of, uh, you know, solution. And, of course, Ron DeSantis' largest donor in Florida is the second largest investor in Regeneron, which is the company that makes this stuff. It's just amazing. A great piece about this by Mark Sumner over at Daily Kos. He, he does some just brilliant writing there. If the treatment were given to all COVID-19 patients, the cost would be more than $80 million a day just for Texas and Florida. This is expensive stuff. Thousands of dollars. And Mark makes the point, dangling the idea that a cure is available only encourages the spread. What we need is masking, social distancing, and vaccines. The chain of transmission has to be broken. Spot on. This is an amazing story. It's over at Raw Story. An anti-vaxxer known for pushing unsupported dangerous sports medicines terrified Walmart workers in Missouri after threatening them with execution for distributing coronavirus vaccines. Christopher Key and other self-described vaccine police recorded video streamed live on Facebook as they confronted pharmacy workers at the Springfield uh, store, this is in Missouri, where workers locked themselves behind the counter after being tipped off ahead of time by a concerned local resident and hid from the bellowing of this group of half a dozen anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, you know, whatever. You are being put on notice, Key shouted through the door. And if you give one more vaccine as of this day after being put on notice, then you can be hung. You can be executed. Right. This guy, he describes himself as an entrepreneur. What they're doing here is violating the Nuremberg Code. He's literally threatening to kill these people. Or threatening them with death, let's say, more directly. It's, it's nuts. It's nuts. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you. The mask wars, the school wars. By the way, September 20 was just announced. That is the date after which, or on and after which, if you have gotten your first vaccine 
eight months before that, you are eligible for a booster. Last vaccine, I guess. So I got my final vaccine in March. So April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. So it looks like I would be eligible in November. We'll see. I mean, you know, maybe you can push it. I don't know. They're going to go for it. That's a good thing, I think. So anyway, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Marcus in Chicago. Hey, Marcus, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, as far as this masking children goes, there's a real simple solution to that problem. This is a public health issue. So if you don't want your child to be masked while he's in school, you can do one of three things. You can either homeschool, have him learn remotely, or hire a tutor or a teacher to come into your home and teach you. Amen, Marcus. It's not like you don't have choices. Yeah. You know, you've got three choices. Pick one. And if you can't afford either one of those, then you've got to conform to the public view as far as public health. Yeah. Yeah. I'm and with if you. You can't do that, then kick rocks. Very well said. Renard in Pontiac, Michigan. Hey, Renard, what's on your mind? Exactly. And isn't that the uh, the party of protected kids? We're the right to life party, if I remember. Oh, well, that's before they're born. Uh, propaganda. That's, that's before that's they're born, Renard. We've, you know, we've got to protect fetuses. But once they're born, hey, to hell with them. No more you know, no, no food stamps, no, no children's health insurance program, no Medicaid, no you know, housing assistance, no nothing once they're born. But until they're born, they're precious little things. Exactly. And now they're treating the Republican Party is treating us like the baby that's born. Yeah. And now it's like, well, go fend for yourself. I'm sorry you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And uh, so you can go ahead and perish. And I look at it like this. These people say that their parents, would they let their parents go uh, if they're walking by a pond down south and it says there's alligators and they have the freedom to put their child, you know. And it's just insanity is what it is. It is truly a cult because that's the only thing that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. people who drank the Kool-Aid when Jim Jones, David Corrett, they burned down their facility. Charles yeah. Manson, pick one. These yeah. people are no different. They're yeah. no different. And and if we think that they're going to protect us, they couldn't even protect the kids at Sandy Hook. What makes them well, think? Well, and, and this has been the Republicans' us? response to Sandy Hook. You know, it was like, oh, well, you know, we can't do anything about that. You just have to let people have guns. And this is their response to COVID. I mean, it's just, it's really tragic. This is what they're all about. Renard, thank you for the call. Deb in Missoula, Montana. Hey, Deb, what's on your mind? It's all cool and good if you're the one making the rules. But if you're the one that's on the short end of the stick of the rules, uh, life gets kind of tough. And as an example, in Montana, we have a Republican governor for the first time in over a decade. Our House and our Senate flipped all red, even though we are, you know, um, we are red state. Uh, we have um, a good mix historically of um, left and right, you know, red and blue. Mm -hmm. um, so now the governor took away the authority of the health departments within each county and city to mandate health requirements such as wearing masks, and he will not put in a mask mandate. Everything's recommended. So for those people that are in those, you know, super red counties, you have no choice. You're at the mercy of the uh, it's all about me versus the it's all about we people. I just you know, don't so understand, Deb, why this is the hill they want to die on. 
Exactly. It, it's like, you know, I get it that Donald Trump was afraid that if the economy slowed down in 2020, that he might not win re-election. And that was a legitimate fear. And he wanted to keep people, you know, engaged in the economy, shopping and going to work. And so he diminished or, or played down, as he, as, he, as he told Bob Woodward, you know, played down the, the, the danger of the virus because he, he wanted to get reelected. But he's no longer in office. Right. Well, and I think that that, you know, we all have our own um, personal agendas. And, and as human beings, we are always going to, you know, that's going to be at the forefront. But as a community, we have a social contract, and we've always abided by that social contract. And we've come so far, you know, we it's not a feudal system in the United States anymore. But it, it seems like things like this that are no-brainers, we are slowly inching back. And this, my rights outweigh your safety. I think you just hit the the core of the issue, Deb, and that is that the idea of a social contract is anathema to the billionaires who own the Republican Party. They want to live above all the rest of us. They want to live above us. They want to live in an oligarchy. They want to have a completely separate set of rules for themselves. They have now their own tax laws, so they only pay one to three percent income taxes uh, effectively, as you know, as we learned uh, to our horror this year. They're never prosecuted for crimes. You got Rick Scott in the United States Senate after his the company that he was the CEO of engaged in the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States, over a billion dollars. He walked away with, you know, with a giant paycheck from that company. Ted Cruz, for example, he's sending his two kids to a private school, a $30,000 a year private school that absolutely mandates masks. Of course, he wants right. his kids protected, but, uh, you know, public schools, no. Public schools, it should be a problem. Those teachers, those pesky yeah. unionized teachers, we can't have that. Um, so well, I, I, I really I, think it's the, the just the, what you said, this whole issue of a social contract. They do not want there to be a social contract because that social contact event eventually is going to expand, as it did before, to suggest that billionaires should be paying taxes like the rest of us um, and, and the companies should be regulated so that they don't poison the environment and screw their workers. Yeah, I think also a large part of the foundation of that you know, veering away from the social contract is the organized religious, the right-wing religion, you know, it's a, it's an institution of exclusion. If you're with me, follow my rules, and we'll take care of you. If you're not, you're excluded. And, uh, you know, you're, you're seen as, as, a, as a threat. And so I think that it they think of so much of just themselves or what they see and believe, which is white Christianity and ultra wealth, because that, as you, you mentioned, you know, it ensures they're staying on top. So it's just, it's so sad. And I agree, you know, three uh, options and if not, kick a rock. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Love it. Our society is being poisoned by big money. It just is being poisoned. I just want to put a punctuation mark on all this. It, it seems to me that the, the way that Donald Trump handled Afghanistan was pretty identical to the way he handled the vaccines. You'll recall that you know, in the last year of his presidency, Donald Trump signed legislation or signed a, an executive order or whatever it was that created this Operation Warp Speed thing that funneled millions of dollars to companies like Moderna None of that money went to Pfizer, by the way. 
Pfizer developed their own vaccine independently. But they, they gave millions of dollars to a couple of vaccine operations, and I believe it was Moderna and J&J, &J, to rapidly develop vaccines. So they rapidly developed vaccines. And then when the Biden administration came into office on January 20th of this year, they looked around and said, okay, where's the plan to distribute these vaccines? And Trump had literally never put a plan into place. He had put Jared in charge of this, and Jared was too busy going over to the Middle East to try to, to, try to borrow a billion dollars from the United Arab Emirates. So there was no plan. Well, it's the same thing with Afghanistan. Trump negotiated a surrender, a United States surrender to, to the Taliban in Afghanistan last year and put into place no plan whatsoever to get Americans out of that country and to get out of that country the people who helped us. The Biden administration actually, when they came into office, started the process of getting people out, particularly Americans. I think the critique or the criticism of them has to be clearly and carefully calibrated. You know, hey, you could have done this better. But it's not like, you know, the right-wing media is like, oh, you know, Kamala Harris thinks the 25th Amendment. And, oh, you know, it's a, I mean, this, this is going to be their, their big thing. And then, of course, we've got DeSantis down in Florida, you know, basically using the virus as a, uh, as a political weapon. Well, let's kill a few uh, public school teachers. Let's terrify them. Yeah, that's going to work. While the private schools are all fully masked, right, in Florida. Ned, in Linton, Tennessee, it says you, or Linden, Tennessee, it says you disagree with me. What's up? Well, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with you. I just um, happened upon your station. But my question is, if Fauci has a patent on the virus, Which why he does is not. he not in jail? No, there, there, Fauci does not have a patent on the virus, Ned. You've been, you've been reading too many bizarre Facebook uh, posts. <laughs> Seriously, Fauci did not patent this virus. William in Pasadena, that's bizarre. William in Pasadena, hey, William, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Good. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about this Afghanistan pullout because I'm 71 and I lived through the Vietnam pullout. Yep, me too. And what really bugs me about this whole thing <clears throat> is that we see all the dialogue on the on the on the mass media about <clears throat> how this was a terrible mistake and so on and so on, and we heard all the same dialogue in 1975. Right. And we don't we understand other cultures. We don't understand that we can't go in disturb cultures that are thousands of years old and expect to change them. In a, in a few years. And what really bugs me is that when I watch the media, I'm watching reporters that are 30 or 40 years old that didn't even exist during the Vietnam pullout having all this criticism. Yeah. And what really bugs me even further is that we've got an endless supply of young people that are going to be manipulated again 20 years from now into going into another culture that's thousands of years old and doing it all over again. Yeah, when the last and man dies who, who remembers the horrors of the last great war, the next great war becomes inevitable, Arnold Toynbee. And one other thing is when I was watching the president discuss the pullout, he said, you know, I finally learned the hard way. It's sad that it took him to, to be 78 years old to learn. 
He's been around a long time. Well, I think Biden knew. Learn, I mean, but, he, but he in his interview with learn. George Stephanopoulos, he said, I don't see how this could have been done better, uh, the withdrawal. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I would offer the suggestion that they should have loosened up the visa requirements early on. But um, yeah. it, it's going to be a cluster no matter what. It's going to be a disaster no matter what. Because, you know, okay, we're going to try and get out the 80,000 people who work directly for us. Well, what about the, you know, the roughly 2 million people who worked with us at various times? who also have a target on their back. I mean, where do you draw the line? There's always going to be somebody who's trying to climb that, that wall to get into the airport at the last minute. There's always gonna be somebody. And as long as the media just focuses on those folks and says, oh my God, oh my God, and forgets that we were lied into this war in the first place, that we stayed there for 20 years because three different presidential administrations didn't have the, the courage to say, this was a mistake, we need to get the hell out. It's media malpractice, frankly, William. Uh, William, I got to run, but thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do by Jennifer L. Eberhardt, Ph.D. This is from the introduction. She starts out by talking about how she's giving a talk to a group of police officers and chiefs of police about bias and they're all sitting in stone face cold you know kind of glaring at her and she continues eventually i stopped with the lessons and the data graphs and the images and the jokes and the movie clips none of which were working she was getting no response from the audience and she says i decided to veer off my usual script and share a personal story i explained that some years ago my son everett and i were on a plane he was five years old wide-eyed and trying to take it all in he looked around and saw a black passenger he said hey that guy looks like daddy I looked at the man, and truth be told, he did not look anything like Daddy, not in any way. I looked around for anyone else Everett might be referring to, but there was only one black man on the plane. I couldn't help but be struck by the irony, the race researcher having to explain to her own black child that not all black people look alike. But then I paused and thought about the fact that kids see the world differently from adults. Maybe Everett was seeing something that I missed. I decided to take another look. I checked the guy's height. No resemblance there. He was several inches shorter than my husband. I studied his face. There was nothing in his features that looked familiar. I looked at his skin color. No similarity there either. Then I took a look at his hair. This man had dreadlocks flowing down his back, and Everett's father is bald. I gathered my thoughts and turned to my son, prepared to lecture him in the way I might inform an unobservant student in my class. But before I could begin, he looked up at me and said, I hope that man doesn't rob the plane. Maybe I didn't get that right. What did you say, I asked him, wishing I had not heard what I had heard. And he said it again, as innocently and as sweetly as you can imagine from a bright-eyed boy trying to understand the world. I hope he doesn't rob the plane. I was on the brink of being upset. Why would you say that, I asked as gently as I could. You know, Daddy wouldn't rob a plane. Yes, he said, I know. Well, why did you say that? This time my voice dropped an octave and turned sharp. Everett looked up at me with a really sad face and said very solemnly, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. Just telling that story reminded me of how much that moment hurt. I took a deep breath, and when I looked back out at the crowd in the auditorium, I saw that the expressions had softened. Their eyes had changed. They were no longer uniformed police officers, and I was no longer a university researcher. We were parents, unable to protect our children from a world that is often bewildering and frightening, a world that influences them so profoundly, so insidiously, and so unconsciously that they and we don't know why we think the way we do. With a heavy heart, I continued with my point. 
We are living with such severe racial stratification that even a five-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next. Even with no malice, even with no hatred, the Black Crime Association made its way into the mind of my five-year-old son, into all of our children, into all of us. I finished the training and invited the audience to come up to ask questions or share their stories. I'd been warned that no one would, but one officer did stay behind in the emptying auditorium. As he approached the stage, I stepped down to meet him. Your story about your son on the plane reminded me of an experience I had on the street. It's something I haven't thought about in a long time, the officer said. I was out one day working undercover, the officer said, and I saw a guy at a distance who didn't look right. This guy looked similar to me, you know, black, same build, same height. But this guy had a scruffy beard, unkempt hair, ripped clothes, and he looked like he was up to no good. The guy began approaching me, and as he was getting closer, I had a feeling that he had a gun on him. Something's off with this guy, I thought. This dude ain't right. So the guy is coming down a hill near the front of a nice office building, one of those big office towers with glass walls. And as the guy's approaching, I couldn't shake the feeling that he was armed and dangerous. As I got closer to the building, I lost him for a second, and I began to feel panicked. Suddenly, I see the guy again, but this time he's inside the office building. I can see the guy clearly through the glass wall. He's walking inside the building in the same direction and at the same pace I was walking. Something was wrong. When I quickened my pace, I could see him quicken his pace. And finally, I decided to stop abruptly, turn, and confront the guy. He stops, too, and I look him face to face, the officer said to me. And when I looked in his eyes, a shock went through me. I realized that I was staring at myself. I was the person I feared. I was staring at my own reflection through the mirrored wall. That entire time, I was tailing myself. I was profiling myself. The stories kept coming. At every single session, someone came up and told me a story, stories that enriched my understanding not only of police-community relations, but also of our human predicament. This book is an examination of implicit bias, what it is, where it comes from, how it affects us, and how we can address it. Implicit bias is not a new way of calling someone a racist. In fact, you don't have to be a racist at all to be influenced by it. Implicit bias is a kind of distorting lens that's a product of both the architecture of our brain and the disparity in our society. We all have ideas about race, even the most open-minded among us. Those ideas have the power to bias our perception, our attention, our memory, and our actions, all despite our conscious awareness or deliberate intentions. Our ideas about race are shaped by the stereotypes to which we're exposed on a daily basis. And one of the strongest stereotypes in American society associates blacks with criminality. And she continues, the book is biased by Jennifer L. Everhart, and it's great. And welcome back. And uh, let's see here. Andrea in Las Vegas, Nevada, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Andrea, what's on your mind today? Hey, how's everybody doing? So, uh, well, just real quick, I said, don't forget, uh, you can be a crackpot and have credentials. I mean, look at the former guy. Okay, mm. so to my point, in Texas, Section 38.031, it's a notice of lice. They have to notify the school nurse. You're talking lice, like crabs. You're talking the little little parasites that attach themselves mm -hmm. to your hair. Yes, it's a, uh, the Board of Trustees of the Independent School District has to notify. It's a policy requiring the school nurse to notify the public elementary schools if a child has lice. Right. And that's not deadly like COVID. So I'm not sure where they're getting that confused, but I think maybe you guys should really bring that to the table. Like, okay, well, what is, what's up with this section 38.031? Why can we have a section for COVID? 
if there's a section right. for life that's not deadly. So in other words, if, if a kid shows up in school and the teacher determines that the kid has lice, the teacher is required to notify the parents of all the children that, who have been exposed to lice by that child. But if a kid shows up at school with the symptoms of COVID or even test positive for COVID in Texas, the teacher doesn't have to notify the parents that their children have been exposed or is required not to? I don't know which it is. It's usually, it's usually the nurse. The nurse okay. has to get involved. They have to be notified immediately. For lice. If the child has lice. Well, what yes, about for COVID? For Certain schools, I know Houston is a very blue city. I think they're pretty on that, but right. other school districts are not. Right. So, this, is, yeah. this is just, you know, it's like the whole thing is just nuts. I mean, it's just. It's like a, it's a bizarre, like, uh, Twilight Zone again. Yeah. It, for sure. it really and truly is. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the call. Ed in Belfair, Washington. Hey, Ed, what's up? Uh, good morning, Tom. Uh, this is Mr. Stefano. I, I don't want any money going to private schools as a taxpayer. I watched the uh, $3.5 being passed the other day, and all the amendments that the Republicans were putting up about money going here, money going there. I, I was surprised an amendment wasn't put up that no taxpayer money was supposed to go to private schools. I, I just don't agree with that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that this whole effort, this, uh, I, I don't think it's a good faith effort, frankly. I think this whole effort to make our public schools dangerous places to send your children is part of a larger multi-decade uh, campaign that has been launched by, by white people starting after the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision, churches that came along in the late 50s and early 60s offering private whites only education. Um, this whole private school movement that grew out of that, and now it's become an industry, and you've got a whole bunch of people who are getting very wealthy running private schools, and they, they want to destroy our public schools. And then you've also got the anti-union partisans. Uh, you know, there's, there's still a couple of large unions left in the United States. You've got the Postal Workers Union, and you've got the you know, two teachers unions, the NEA and the, uh, the other one that Randy Weingarten is the head of. I, I forget the acronym. Uh, but in no, any I, case, uh, you know, they want to destroy these unions. They want to destroy our public schools. They want to turn everything into some kind of for-profit something or other. So, what? Oh, the American Federation of Teachers is Randy. And thank you for the call. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really concluding that that's the bottom, that that really is the bottom line for many of these folks who are saying, oh, school choice. We have to let children uh, choose whether or not to wear masks or let their parents choose for them. Really? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Tim in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, Stefano. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there was an article in the Wall Street Journal authored by a doctor from Tufts and a doctor from Johns Hopkins. And that sounded pretty persuasive, so I looked it up. And I found that one of the doctors is named Marty Macquarie. And he wrote an opinion piece that was published in the Wall Street Journal in, on February 18, 2021. The headline is, We'll have herd immunity by April. 
I mean, if somebody wrote that, how can they have any credibility going forward? Well, and how can you quote an article with that title as as an authoritative source of information? The guy is an oncologist, and he argues in this piece that because COVID has dropped so low in January, it can't possibly be due to people changing their behavior. It can only be a sign that we we're nearing herd immunity yeah this guy is a idiot yeah at the very very least thank you very yeah, much for that tim thank yeah. you and thank you for doing the research on that i you know i pull these things out you know when we're on the air and i just can't be googling at the same time i'm thank you i appreciate the contribution to the flow of facts on our program brad in prattville alabama hey brad what's on your mind today So I just kind of wanted to give you some info what's going on down here. We are currently out of ICU beds. We have 41 pediatric cases in ICU. And the governor luckily just lifted the requirement that one nurse can now treat two ICU patients at the same time. But instead of allowing businesses to mandate vaccines and mandate masks, we're just going to double work our nurses and uh, doctors that are already overworked because, you know, we're still on the honor system when it comes to – doing the right thing this we is can't uh, your you governor k ivy isn't that that's, that is correct yeah yeah yes yeah. uh so there's still she's still not allowing mask mandates she I will mean, not she, allow mask mandates or didn't she apologize for that mandate that was asa hutchison oh okay uh from arkansas okay I'm, uh k ivy now i will say this from the beginning she has said everybody needs to mask up everybody needs to get the vaccine as soon as you're available she was one of the first gop governors to get the vaccine right. so she has said the right thing she's just not doing the right thing and i'll be honest with you tom i really feel like she is absolutely scared to go back and do it we had a, we did have a mask mandate for about four months last year starting in march and i think it expired at end of july but she was she was getting a lot of threats because of it. Yeah, they're they're afraid of the so boys. I, I think this. Yeah, exactly. This and is the amazing was, thing. You uh, see these school board meetings and you see these people shouting and screaming and stuff. And then, you know, yeah. and then somebody takes the video of that and, and does, you know, facial recognition software and discovers that none of those people are parents. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're like been you know, in school for two weeks. We've been in school, back in school for two weeks now, and both of my kids have gotten letters home saying somebody in their classroom tested positive. But our whole family is fully vaxxed. Both of my kids are over 12, and they were they got their second shot right before they went back to school. So, yeah. um, you know, hopefully that's good enough. Yeah. You know, because yeah. nobody else is going to do the right thing. Well, I wish you the very best. Brad, thank you for the call. Thanks, Thanks for the update on Alabama. Thomas in Mossy Head, Florida. Hey, Thomas, what's up? Hey, Tom. My oldest daughter is a fifth grade teacher mm-hmm. and uh, she was making the kids wear a mask apparently some of the kids went home and told their parents and the uh, head of the school board set my daughter down and not directly but almost like a lawyer insinuated that if she does that again she's going to lose her job in the meantime her husband my son-in-law who's never had a sick day in his life has COVID-19 to the point they just put him on a respirator. Oh, my God. Was yeah, he vaccinated? No, he wouldn't. I mean, he's, oh, he's no. a Trump fan big time. Oh, of course, so my daughter, sorry. she's smart. Yeah, well, I've got another comment, too. And go, if you have anything go for it, Thomas. Yeah, I think, uh, 
you know, a lot of these bridges you'll see they're dedicated to, you know, somebody, whatever, either an ex-politician or somebody. But anyway, there's a small bridge down here on the Panhandle of Florida that we're going to go ahead, me and a buddy of mine who has a print shop, we're going to make up the most official-looking dedication sign to the governor. The name of the creek is Dismal Creek. I don't know how long. I don't know how long. The Dismal Creek dedicated to Ron DeSantis? Yeah. I don't know how long it'll last. I don't think, you know, we're going to make it as special as we can looking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it might stay up there for a long time, and I doubt if the, you know, I'm surrounded by Trumpers. Yeah. If they'll catch on to it. In, in memory of all the people who died for Ron DeSantis' political career, thank you all. Dismal <laughs> Creek. Yeah, Dismal Creek. Amazing. Thomas, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening to us down there in Mossy Head, Florida. But we're going we're gonna to continue the day, and then I'll be getting back to your calls. So your thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, are you over it with the mask holes? I am completely over it with these people. I, j- I just, I really believe that as particularly now, as we are seeing children fighting for their lives, you know, the reports out of this, uh, just, just out of one town in Arkansas, they had, what, 20 some odd kids in the ICU and eight of them on respirators. These are children who are literally being, you know, you've got artificial machines breathing for them. They are fighting for their lives. And this is just in one small, you know, part of one small state. This disease, you know, we, we, the, the old COVID was like, oh yeah, all the young people were saying, it's the boomer remover. Not anymore. Now it's taking down 10 year olds. It's killing 20 year olds. It's, it's, it's producing lifelong sickness for 25 and 30 year olds. It's killing 40 year olds. You don't need to be obese. You don't need to have the diabetes. You don't need to have asthma or any of the other pre-existing conditions that, that set people up to die as a consequence of this. And I'm hopeful that now that the people who thought they were invulnerable, oh, I'm 30 years old, I listen to Rush Limbaugh every day, well, you know, or Sean Hannity every day, and, and I know that I'm, you know, I'm not gonna get this, it only kills old people, I'm not worried, and, you know, I don't need no stinking mask, I'm gonna get in a fight with the guy at the store and it'll be fun. Those people are starting to die with the Delta variant. And as a consequence, maybe it's sinking in, and then you look at Governor Kristi Noem, one of this small cluster of a, about a half a dozen Republican or maybe a dozen or so Republican governors who are just quite delighted, apparently, to watch people die in their states. They, they don't just have blood on their hands. They are drenched in blood. And she's like, welcome. Yeah, 700,000 people. Come to Sturgis, South Dakota. Let's have a party. No masks required. And those people are going to come back to my state? They're gonna drive their motorcycles back to Oregon. They're gonna drive their motorcycles to your state. And they're gonna bring this virus with them. And then the Republican governors, when you bring this issue up, they say, oh, but you know, what about Joe Biden and the border? That's where it's all coming from, don't you know? I've had enough. I'm with the, the writer from Michigan. Oh, what's her name? Susan 
Susan J. Demas, or Demas, D-E-M-A-S. I'm with her. Enough. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Stick around. Mike in Topeka, Kansas. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, I was just calling a... I was a little confused about what the big thing is as far as having it being mandated for people to be vaccinated. Because when I was growing up, I mean, you had to be vaccinated. That was just the way it was. Yeah. You well, know? I, you know, I remember when they when they did the, the polio vaccine. In fact, I remember two different polio right. vaccines. I, you know, it may, one of them may be a false memory from watching newsreels or something. I mean, this was when I was literally a little kid. But I remember getting a sugar cube in school, and I remember getting a shot a couple of years later, if I'm remembering correctly. I might have the order reversed. And no. I don't remember any anti-polio vaccine campaigns. There were not people standing out in front of the school with signs. They were not yelling at the school board. My teacher wasn't quaking in her boots. Um, you know, everybody just lined up and got the polio vaccine. And guess what? We got rid of polio. Yep. I mean, around the world. And But what we didn't have in whatever year that was, 1957, I think, or 50, you know, some, somewhere there in the mid-50s, what we didn't have is we didn't have social media populated by right-wing trolls and trolls from foreign countries who were trying to tr screw up America. And we didn't have a Republican Party at that time that thought that its best chance to win elections was to destroy America and have us blame it on Democrats. So therefore, you know, when a Democrat gets power, you do everything you can to, to screw up America. And that's what we have right now. We've got Republicans that are trying to engage in intentional sabotage of our country, of our health, because they think that this is going to help them in the 2022 and 2024 elections. You know, I, I live in Kansas. It's like, Kansas is like the mecca of conservatism, I'll tell you, and the Republican Party. It's a mess here. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because I've got a lot of friends <laughs> that are Republican, but I just don't understand why it's such a big deal about the vaccinations and I'll get off here. But that was just, I just don't understand. To me, it makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't whatsoever. to me either, Mark. And, and have you discussed this with any of your conservative, any of your Republican friends? Oh, God, yes. What do they say? <laughs> what are they, you know, are they vaccinated? Uh, you know... Most of them are not. I won't say all of them. Yeah, yeah. But most of them are not and, vaccinated. And, and what's their reason? They don't really give you a reason. Huh. You know, just, I it's saw it on Tucker. Like, Is that the deal? I, I think <laughs> I think a lot of them are are think that a lot of them have a fear that there's. Uh, that there's something in the vaccine, I think, or that the vaccine may have adverse side effects. Yeah. yeah it's but, very unfortunate, Mike. It's very unfortunate. Mike, I do have to go now. Thank you very much for the call, and thanks for watching us there in Topeka on Free Speech TV. I truly appreciate it.
Tom Hartman here with you and Michelle in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind today? A couple of things. California and Los Angeles City School, LAUSD, have rules regarding vaccinations. And um, I just double-checked the LAUSD website, and they require all the standard vaccinations in order to go to school there. You know, COVID, again, is transitional. But California is also instituting, gradually instituting COVID vaccine requirements, and they're requiring teachers to have vaccines to go back into the school system. My cousin's a teacher in Northern California. And so there's not this, you know, we we have our share of Trumpers and, and all that, but it's not like it's a majority of people here in the Los Angeles area. And any of those wealthy people are either, A, going to private school and getting some kind of waiver from the private school, because the public schools are not going to give them that waiver that easily, or they're going and being homeschooled, and the wealthy people can afford that. Right. And also, we don't know the numbers. I mean, if, if uh, 99% of all uh, kids or all people are normally vaccinated and and 98% in Los Angeles, then <laughs> Los Angeles is lower than the norm. I mean, you know, it's, right. so what I, did I, Abe Lincoln say, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. Not to say that Jennifer is a liar necessarily, because Michelle, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate the call. Marianne in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Marianne, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, yours, um, Jennifer Stefano had mm-hmm. said that um, uh, healthcare workers were not getting uh, COVID as much, and why aren't they? And um, the response to that would be because they're wearing shields, because they're wearing a mask and a shield, because when they have any patient contact, they are gowned, mask, shield, gloves. They are doing what is required. Well, on top of that, I remember in the middle of middle of last year when they hit the statistic that a thousand physicians in America had died of COVID. I don't know what the number is now. I've, I, I recall having seen something that said 2000, but I've, I, I'm reluctant to specifically quote that. But I know that at least a thousand doctors in America have died of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And so doctors and nurses and right. Staff, right. anyone involved is is has gotten it, but now they know. Now, nurse, the nursing homes in Florida, um, one of the main ones that a friend of mine works for. Once they had a positive case in their group, not in her nursing home, but in a group, they got the shields on again. Yeah. So you know uh, they are trying to do everything they can, and people are not preventing. They're now Florida thinks. Treatment is the best. No, prevention is the best. Exactly. Treatment is absurd. Yeah. You know, so, um, and it's so expensive, like you were saying. Regeneron is so expensive. And I, have they used that on children? Because they seem to be the most vulnerable right now. Yeah. Is Regeneron approved for children? I don't, I don't believe know. So. I haven't it's, seen it's anything a, about it, that. It only has an emergency use authorization, so I doubt that extends to children. Uh, but I don't know for yeah. sure. But uh, it's these are, we just have to protect ourselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These are very, very big issues, and we need to deal with them. And I, you know, your point is excellent. I mean, it's, to go back to the to the fellow who said, you know, it's like saying, you know, it's a personal choice to drink before you drive. Well, it's it's almost like they're yeah, responding yeah. by saying, okay, well, we're going to make drinking, you know, driving drunk. We're going to make that a personal choice. And what we're going to do is build more hospitals and more auto body shops to deal with all the car crashes.
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 